Well, week four of Advent. Okay, okay. So you're not as excited about that as I am. It is exciting. And so uh, this morning, I thought I would tell you about my first fight. Does that sound good? Okay. You know, pastors should be, you know, honest with his congregation. And so um, in grade six, that's when I had my first fight. And uh, in grade six, what happened was everyone played soccer. We played soccer at recess and at lunch, everyone in the class. And so the way it worked was these three guys were on one team, and they were really good soccer players. And then on the other team was everyone else. You'd think, so I was on the everyone else team. I know you would think I would be on the other one, but... And uh, so you'd think we would beat them, but they were so good, and they would just, you know, it's like so crowded, everyone's there. And so it would get frustrating at times, and one of the three guys was this, he was really short, and he was uh, kind of a loudmouth kid, and kind of cocky, and so he would like trash talk as they play, and then they would be killing us, and like, it just, like one day it just finally got to me. And I felt like, you know, he's putting people down, and he's bumping. And, and so I thought, you know, someone needs to teach this guy a lesson. So it's going to be me. And uh, so I went to teach him a lesson, and I had forgotten one really important part of the story, which is that Skyler, this kid, he was a hockey player. And I wasn't. And so Skyler... I went to fight him, and I suddenly, I don't even know how it happened. It just was a few seconds, and I was on the ground, and he was sitting on top of me. <laughs> and so then I was, like, swinging my arms or something, like, and he was just sitting on me. And I was, like, going to teach him, you know. And then he, and there's a crowd around us. He reaches back his hand. He's got me by the scruff of my shirt. He reaches back his hand, and he just hauls off. But as he gets to my face, he stops, and he puts his fist to my cheek, and then he just pushed my face. He didn't actually punch me. And my foolishness and my pride was met with grace. It's amazing, because he didn't have to do that. It was in that moment that I realized that I would never be referred to as mighty. It might actually, it might have been a few, a little bit later when I was reflecting on that situation, that 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 wasn't going to be a word people associated with me, Mighty John. Like it just, it it's not going to be a thing. I have other gifts, and I'm okay with that, right? You know, <laughs> when I think about what does it take for someone to be referred to as mighty, we have, you know, we've got. Uh, the Mighty Ducks, the team, you know, we've got Mighty Pups, if you've ever seen that show. And back in the day, we had Mighty Mouse. You know, I think about like Mighty, what, what, what was the deal with Mighty? Mighty is, it means someone with superior power or ability or strength. That's what it means. And this morning, we're in the week four of our series. Our series is called, And He Shall Be Called. And we've been talking about what God wants to be called. Like, what, what does he say his name is? And not like his name tag name, like, hi, my name's Yahweh, what's your name? You know, at, at the party or whatever. Not that kind of name, but the kind of name that tells you something about who he is. 
how he reveals his nature to us. Who is he? What is he like? And we've heard and talked about how God cares about what we think about him. And he cares how we think about him. And Yahweh is personal. And Yahweh came to reveal himself to us in the person of Jesus. So let's read our passage. It's from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which we've read every week. We'll read again this week. And this is what it says. Uh, We have it up on the screen as well. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The living God wants to be known as mighty God. The living God wants to be known as mighty God. See, God is mighty. He's referred to as mighty a lot of times throughout Scripture. He's called mighty one, mighty God, mighty one of Israel or mighty one of Jacob, mighty warrior, He's described as having a mighty hand 25 times. Like, I I don't know if you knew that. 25 times the mighty hand of God. A mighty arm, mighty power, mighty acts, mighty works, mighty acts of judgment, mighty strength, mighty wonders, a mighty voice. And he's described as being strong and mighty, mighty in power, mighty and awesome, mighty in battle, mighty in deed, mighty to save, a mighty rushing wind, and a mighty rock. But all of those mighty words don't necessarily tell us what mighty means. What does mighty mean? Different weeks we've, we've, had, we've had things like wonderful counselor, and we, we found out that it might not be what we thought it was. Well, mighty is what you think it is. There's not really a surprise. It means powerful. Powerful, and it's used to, by implication to talk about usually a warrior or a, maybe a tyrant, someone with power, A champion, a chief, a giant man, a mighty one, a strong man, a valiant man. It's used often to talk about a hunter, hunters, or commonly of an impetuous soldier or a hero. I like that description of a hero. It's an impetuous soldier. (laughs) That's what a hero is, just an impetuous soldier, someone who didn't think it through. And in the Bible, early on, we hear about Nimrod, the mighty hunter. Nimrod, like a guy with a really unfortunate name. (laughs) Genesis 10, 8, and 9. Like, back in the day, it was was a strong name, I guess. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He's even got a saying that goes with his name. We don't use that saying anymore. Like, someone does something incredible, you're not like, you're a Nimrod. <laughs> and that means you're mighty, right? Like, we don't do that anymore. But that's, that's what it was. That, he had a saying with his name. He was a mighty man. Or I think of David's mighty men in the Old Testament. David, who is the king, he's got, gathered these guys around him, 30 guys. He's got this amazing army, but these 30, you know, amazing, mighty people who fought with him. 
And uh, at one point, David's the king, and they, they've conquered lots of land, and his son rebels against him. And his son's counselor says this, Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in a field. That's what, that's what his son's advisor says when they're going to go fight against David and his mighty men. They say, it's like we're going to go fight a bear who just lost her cubs in a field. This is not a good idea. This is not a good thing. And these, these guys who surrounded David, they were the heroes of renown. They, were, they, they climbed into snowy pits to fight lions. And they fought hundreds of enemies at one time. And they impaled enemies with their own spear, like took it away and then killed them with their own spear. Or filled their water bottles in the enemy camp. Epic tales of mighty deeds, heroic boldness and courage. Like if you were given the title mighty, people were afraid of you. Like that's what his advisor says. If we go fight them, everyone will be afraid. So if the idea of a mighty man carries with it some fear, then so should a mighty God. Repeatedly, we're told to fear Yahweh. Even one of the names God claims is the fear of Isaac. What God do you worship? I worship the fear of Isaac. That's the name of God. Joshua 4.24 says, So that all the people on the earth will know that the hand of God is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God was doing things, being mighty, so that people would fear him. God is mighty. You would want him on your side, like, like the mighty of old. You would want them on your team, not on the other team. You didn't want to go up against them. You wanted them on your team because they were mighty, stronger, legendary, powerful, fearless. Descriptions of God. How is God mighty? How is God mighty? The Dictionary of New Testament Theology says this, God's might is primarily revealed on the level of history to a particular people. That was the Israelites. The proof of God's power, so fundamental for Israel, was the miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, Remember, Moses writes, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. See, for them, God was mighty because he brought them out of slavery. He delivered them out of slavery. Maybe you've heard that story before. I've told it a lot of times here because it's an important story. Moses and Pharaoh are there, and God is going to deliver his people. Maybe, you, maybe you've seen the, the animated version, uh, The Prince of Egypt, I think tells it very beautifully. Powerful story. The tragedy and the triumph and the wonders of God as he demands the freedom of his people. And then the fearful plagues, which seem to only affect certain parts of the country. And then finally, the death of all the firstborns. And there's that, that sad and tragic story as they kill the lambs and they put blood over their doorposts and the angel of death passes over their houses if they mark them. And the people were set free. For a little bit. 
as they marched out following God in the cloud and God in the pillar of fire. And then suddenly Pharaoh changes his mind. Just as they're arriving at the dead end of the Red Sea, they're stuck. And then Pharaoh's army rides in behind them. And then what happens? Moses steps out with his staff and the waters part. And the people of Israel walk through on dry land. And the Egyptian army, I don't know what they're thinking, but they go after them through the Red Sea until the Israelites are all on the other side. And then, greatest army on earth wiped out. Just like that. Pharaoh defeated. But the conflict wasn't between Moses and Pharaoh, which often in the story it feels like that. It feels like, oh yeah, Moses, and he's up against Pharaoh. Who's going to win? No. The contest was between the mighty God and false gods. These gods, Egypt said, yeah, these are our gods. Pharaoh said, I am a god. And the mighty God came and won the day. That was the story. God was stronger. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods. And Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Psalm 89, verse 8 says, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. So make no mistake, God is mighty. This God set his people free, parting the sea. So when Gabriel... Angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and he says, you're going to have a baby. And Mary says, how is this going to be? And Gabriel says, nothing will be impossible for God, with God. Those words, be impossible, do you know what they mean? Well, they mean what we think they mean. A, a thing that cannot be done. Nothing will be impossible. It's impossible. You say, well, that's impossible. It's like, it can't be done. It's impossible. It also means... To be unable, like it's impossible for me to do something. Like there are things I can't do, you know, certain types of skiing off mountains or whatever. I'd be like, no, that's impossible. You go, you could do that. No, I can't do that. I could die if I do that. It's impossible for me. I don't have the strength or the power or the ability. It means to be weak. And what Gabriel says to Mary is this. God is mighty because he will never be unable. So don't get lost in the double negatives. He will never be unable. He will always be able. He will never not have strength. Or you could say he will always have strength. There will never be a thing that cannot be done. He can do everything, anything. That's our God. He is mighty. God is mighty. And Jesus is mighty. So Isaiah, this prophet, 700 or so years before Jesus, says there's this baby coming. And the baby, this child, his name will be Mighty God. And I picture, like, that will be hard in kindergarten. Hi, what's your name? Bob. What's your name? Susie. What's your name? Mighty God. Should we call you Mighty God or just Mighty? Or what would you like to go with? You know, it's going to be hard on the playground, right? Hey, I'm Mighty God. Do you think you can climb into the top of this thing? I'm Mighty God. Of course. Look, it's going to be a challenge. 
But he was a redeemer and a, a rescuer and a deliverer, a mighty one. They would say, like, remember the Red Sea? Well, better than that. That's what's coming. Better than that. Now, I, I got to be honest. I look at this story. Jesus is a baby. I mean, this story is about a helpless baby. A story about a baby who grows up to be a man of peace, who tells people to love their enemies and turn the other cheek, and he gets beaten up and he doesn't fight back. He's accused and he refuses to defend himself. He dies a criminal's death on, on, in public execution. This is who we're talking about. He doesn't beat anyone up. He doesn't develop superpowers or dropkick anyone. His dad isn't an MMA fighter or a gladiator. He's a carpenter, and that's not even his dad. You guys, who's mighty in this story? How is Jesus mighty? Or the other people in this story, is anyone mighty? We've got shepherds. Shepherds come to greet Jesus, to worship him. Not legendary warriors. Not the Roman legion, you know, the mighty legion, or the famous general comes. Not men of valor and renown. It's like outcasts find him in the feeding trough. Warm and dry, sure, swaddled, but there's no room in the inn. That's not how the mighty arrive. When the mighty come, you make room. Other people move because the mighty are here. That's how it works. We've got the magi. I mean, they're just foreign wise men who bring gifts in secret. And then they take off through the back door because we've got this, this real king on the war path. Like King Herod, he's got soldiers, and he's got, he's got a vision and a determination and a cunning to see it through. He is feared, King Herod. And we've got angels in the story. They sing songs, though. They don't have swords that we know of. No swords. They're not fighting battles and singing. They're just singing. Like, it's, it's almost disappointing. And then they strike fear into people's hearts, but... But look at who they're striking fear into. It's like an old man and a young girl and a bunch of lice-infested, wild-living sheep babysitters. That's who's afraid of the angels. Like, this is, this is the story? How is God mighty in Jesus? That's my question. Here's the thing. Back in the day, whatever predicament the Israelites were in, whatever personal situation they were dealing with, Hey, are you, are you having a hard time? Yeah, I'm really down. My, my finances are crushing me. My business is collapsing. I don't know what to do. They would look at each other and they would remind each other of something. They would say, well, don't worry because our God, Yahweh, he's personal. And, and our God, he parted the sea. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's the story. Our God parted the sea. He can make a way for you. Oh, well, you know, my marriage is collapsing here, and, and I don't know what to do. Don't worry. Our God, he's mighty. He parted the sea. He came, and he made a way where there was no way. That's our God. And they would remind each other of this. They would look back to that story and say, our God is mighty and personal. He was there, and he came, and he led us. So uh, for us, it's a different, a different reference point. When we remind each other of something, it's a different thing. Jesus wasn't just going to deliver the Israelites from slavery from like an earthly king like Pharaoh, or they thought the Romans, that's who was occupying them at the time. 
Jesus didn't come to do that. His government wasn't going to be a tyranny like Herod's. Jesus came to save everyone. We like to say every willing heart. Every willing heart, Jesus says, I'll save you. I'm down for that. And not through the mighty acts of a soldier hero, but through the sacrificial death of laying down his life for us. It looked more like the Passover. His blood to save us. And he was brutally beaten and killed on the cross. And the way looked closed, like as closed as them in the red, with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. That's how it looked when Jesus died. We're hemmed in. We're trapped. And then Jesus was mighty. He was mighty over death. He rose up from the grave and from the tomb. He appeared to hundreds of people and he declared the way open. The curtain tore in the temple from the top to the bottom. The curtain between the holy place where God's presence rested and all the people who wanted to to be near God but not too near God. And and if you went too near, you would die. The The curtain tore. Jesus was mighty to make a way. Mightier than death. He's mighty to set free. Jesus is mighty to heal. He's mighty to make whole. He's mighty. His name is above every name. And if that's not enough for you, which I think it should be, you could go to Revelations at the very back of your Bible, and you could read about what Jesus looks like at the end of all things. I mean, he's embraced his mighty. This is what it says. John has this vision in Revelation 19, 11, and this is what he says. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in white linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. Jesus is mighty. Jesus is mighty. And the powers and the rulers and the principalities, spiritual and otherwise, will fall down in fear before him when they see him face to face. Jesus is mighty. And the Spirit is mighty in us. The Spirit is mighty in us. God is mighty, Jesus is mighty, and the Spirit is mighty. But I want to tell you something. Mighty is not magic. And this is where we get tripped up, I think. This is where I get tripped up. I get a little confused sometimes. Magic is for my whim and my comfort. It's like things that happen for me that I'm making happen. I want magic is just want it to happen. Mighty is for God's glory, and it's done God's way. And it's funny how easily I take God's character, and then I want to use it for my benefit, for my profit. 
I want to be like, oh, God is like this. Well, then he can do this for me. And God's like that. He can do this for me. And God's like this. He could do this for me. God's mighty. Well, then he could do some mighty acts for me. And it's like, God's my mighty machine. I take a, I deserve it quarter and I put it into the machine. I deserve it. Okay. Give me a mighty act. Okay. God, I deserve it. Don't you, I've given you my life. That's pretty major. So come on, give me a mighty act. God, hey, I've gone to church every Sunday this month. Ding, ding. I prayed at least several times today. Bing, come on, give me a mighty act. It's like, I want God to be my machine. Just the cha-ching, bring out the, the mighty acts for me. That's not how it works. Psalm 106, 8 says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. God's not doing it for me. He's doing it for him. Most of the time, I want mountains moved because I don't like the peaks and valleys. So I say, God, will you move this mountain? This mountain is in front. I don't, you know, I want it moved. But really what I want is I want a smooth way because I want to be comfortable. I don't like mountain walking is very uncomfortable. So if you just clear the way, it would look more like this. And then I could just walk. Hey, this is really comfortable. That's how I want my life to look. And so I'm asking God, move this mountain, move this mountain, move this mountain, because I want it to be smooth for me. You know, the Israelites, they walked out of Egypt, and they saw the mighty acts of God, and they weren't more comfortable on the other side. If you know the story, they get through the Red Sea, and then no one ever complained again, right? (laughs) No. They complain all the time because they have food issues, and they have water issues, and they have meat issues, and they have finance issues, and they have shelter and direction and leadership and conflict and religion problems. But do they grow to know God more in the process? Yes, they do. Is it comfortable? No, it isn't. So the question I have for you and for me is, Do you want to know God or do you just want to be comfortable? Because those two things don't always go together. In fact, I think rarely do they go together. To know God or just to be comfortable. A number of years ago, we so we were living in our house, but we didn't own it. Um, Investors had bought it and they'd made a deal with us that we would fix it up for sweat equity. And once we did that, we would sell it. And take the money and we'd go buy a house somewhere. And then it came time, you know, we'd fix it up for a few years. And then the investors came and said, okay, we want to sell the house now. And Lauren was pregnant. And we said, oh, we really like this house now. And would it be possible for us to put the money back into the house and work out some deal? And they said, sure, we can try to do that. And so we got a gift from our families for a down payment. And we had the sweat equity, I should say that correctly, (laughs) put back into the house. And... So we did that, and I went to the mortgage broker, and I said, okay, I've got all these things lined up. Ding! Okay, can we buy the house? And the mortgage broker said, no, I'm sorry, you can't. I said, well, can you do that little thing again? And they said, well, you don't make enough money. (laughs) 
to live in that house. And I said, well, just, you know, do something. Can't you do something? And they said, no. And I said, can you talk to someone? They said, okay, we'll try. And and they said, no, no, no. They called me back. No, it's not going to work. And so the next day I was in the car and I was with the kids. I remember this moment. And I was listening to the song came on Mighty to Save. That song, it was a number of years ago. Our God is mighty to save. Savior, he can move the mountains. And as I was listening, I thought, do I believe this? It's like, I do believe this. God, would you move the mountain that is this, this obstacle here? It seems like everything is lining up for you. to. You've called us here. You've given us this. That afternoon, hello, it's the mortgage broker. She said, I talked to the manager again, and he did something and worked it out so you could buy the house. And I said, what, really? She said, yeah, it's, it's all, it's a go. So we signed the papers, and we lived in joy ever since. <laughs> right? Isn't that the story? No. Then the furnace breaks down, and then the tree falls on part of our house. And then there was all sorts of, every, everything went wrong. Finances are tight, and we've got to replace that or fix that. Or this thing still needs to be done. And it's not very long before I go to God and I say, why did you give me this house? <laughs> I'd be better off in Egypt, is what we say. Because this is hard. You moved a mountain, and I thought it was going to be smooth sailing. But it's not. Because the Spirit of God isn't working mighty acts into my life or your life to make us happy or just to give us things. Hey, here's a house. Yeah, that's what I just said. Just about the house. No. It's about Him making a beautiful, holy people out of you and me, out of the messes we used to be. The transformation that's happening every day, slowly but surely that we're becoming more like him. So how do we become mighty? That's my question. I want to be mighty John. (laughs) So the boys and I, we've started this training regimen. This is not about being mighty. This is a different kind of mighty. Elijah's trying to make this higher soccer level. So we started doing this training together. So the boys, uh, every, every night or most nights, they do ladder speed training. They do wall passing in the basement. They do jumps and strength training. And then I do push-ups and sit-ups with them. That's the part I do with them. The rest of it I just watch. Every few nights, too, we go out to Karina LeBlanc turf field, and they do interval running, and they do sprinting and jogging and shooting practice. And they love it. They just, it's like checking the ball, and they've got a sheet, and they're marking it down and keeping track. This is how you and I think we're going to become mighty, isn't it? We're going to start a new regiment. That's what we'll do. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll get some New Year resolutions, and that'll fix things. We'll, we'll drink more smoothies and less beer, and that'll fix it, right? That's the problem. Or we'll do more praying and more devotions, and we'll check the boxes, and then we'll become mighty. Come on, we can do it. It's not how it works. I mean, discipline's good, but that's not how you become mighty. King Jehoshaphat is a story in 2 Chronicles 16. Just read it again recently. He's this, the, one of the good kings of Judah. Remember last week we talked about how many bad kings there were. He's one of the good kings of Judah, and the, in chapter 16, it says, it lists all his 
mighty men of valor, his army, with their commanders. And when you add it up, it's over a million soldiers King Jehoshaphat has. He makes a bad decision. There's a battle. It doesn't really describe what happens to the army, but in a few chapters, Jehoshaphat is facing Moab and the Ammonites and all their friends, a multitude, and he is afraid. Regardless of the state of his army, he's in fear. And it says in 2 Chronicles 20, 12, his prayer, Jehoshaphat's prayer is, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And this is what he says. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Like, learn that prayer. It's like my pastor prayer. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And if you know the story, then you know that God says, I've got this taken care of. And they march out to the valley where the, where the battle's going to be, and it's just dead bodies. There's no armies. And they find out that those, all those different groups got into a fight, and they started killing each other. The fight started too early. And they killed each other, and by the time Israel shows up, the fight's over. They killed each other. God took care of it for them. Charles Spurgeon says this, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, like coals without fire. We are useless. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Or like Moses says, If you don't go, God, I'm not going either, because I'm going to go where you're going. That's how I'm going to go with you. The Spirit is mighty to transform us. Like, look at the disciples. These people who are with Jesus, physical Jesus on the earth. I mean, they were a mess. They're uneducated, conflicting values, proud, weird, afraid. And then suddenly they become the church. How does that even happen? This is a real picture. Saved it in the caves of Engedi or something. How did they become the church? The answer is by the power of the Spirit. There was a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire. And then this guy, Peter, the bumbling denier who's more wrong than right, gets up and preaches a message. And 3,000 people are converted. Like, you guys, you've read that story too many times. If I preach a sermon and, th- and 300 people were saved, we would be saying there was a revival. Wouldn't we? If I preached a message and 30 people came, we would be so pumped and excited. We'd be sending out news bulletins. God is at work. 30 people came to the Lord. <gasps> and if I preach and three people came to the Lord, I would be like, I'm doing awesome. What a great message I preached. Wouldn't I? 3,000? There's no way I'd be thinking that was me. That's the Spirit of God who is mighty. Mighty to transform us. Mighty to work among us. That's the Spirit of God. Mighty to set free. Mighty to transform. Mighty to heal and restore. You guys, the living God wants 
us to know him as mighty God. God's mighty. Yahweh's been known as mighty God for a long time. The fear of Isaac. He demonstrated his power by rescuing his people out of Egypt. And Jesus is mighty. The Christmas baby doesn't always seem very mighty. But Jesus delivered us from the tyranny of sin and death by giving himself and then rose from the dead in mighty power and ascended to reign, and he will return in power as a mighty warrior. And more good news. The Spirit is mighty in us. God's not mighty to make us comfortable, but for his glory and for our transformation. Although we might not feel mighty, we are becoming mighty. The mighty of God, indwelt by his mighty Spirit to make us into his glorious bride. Let's pray.